Hello, this is Bookish Talk. This is a somewhat of an unusual program. Uh, uh, today will be a personal uh, announcement from Stepan, and perhaps you can start by introducing our third guest and go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, this is my wife, and she's sort of uh, the person because because of uh, uh, whom all these changes are happening and uh, all these. Uh, news are uh, coming our way. So uh, this is Sofia. And uh, yeah, I'm glad to see Sofia uh, on our podcast. Finally, uh, I, I thought about inviting her for quite a long time because she's a very smart person. And uh, it's very interesting to talk to her. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I don't think many people know about it. But uh, she's sort of mastermind behind our uh, Instagram account. So uh, well, many thanks to Sofia for that. Hi. Hi. So, Sonia, what is the big news? The big news are that iBookbinding, together with us, me and Stefan, are moving to France, to Paris, or somewhere close there. And that's happening because in our family, the responsibilities are shared in the following way. I do corporate job. I have a committed path of working in the big international company in marketing. And Stefan is following his dream of being a bookbinder or providing tools for bookbinding and doing the more craftsman type of stuff. And uh, my job is um, assuming that we have to move in a couple of years time, uh, every time. So we spend in every country for three years and then we move on. Uh, we were supposed to move to the US as you some of you may remember a year ago was announced that never happened because of the lockdown and the pandemic. And instead of moving there, we decided to skip it altogether and move to another country uh, for my next role, uh, which will be in France. So, and Stefan being a great guy he is, uh, kind of following me along the way while still developing his uh, part. And I'm super proud of him as well. So we're super, super happy to embrace this adventure and um, move to France. I should also say that I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of my wife because uh, she's doing a really great job for, in her company and uh, uh, yeah, has a lot of achievements. And uh, this, is, oh, this is amazing how, how it all works out. <laughs> oh, you're so sweet, you two. <laughs> so before we continue, I, I want to make a short announcement. Uh, there will be a lot of uh, discussing different topics in this video, Russian literature, our move, uh, how it all works out, some technical details about uh, iBook binding and how uh, the shop will work and uh, all other things. If you are more interested in, in, in technical uh, uh, things uh, related to iBook binding, you can check uh, the timestamps below and I will link all the, all the uh, things that, that are related to this topic. If you are interested in, in, in us talking about all the different stuff about Russians and uh, I don't know, uh, about our experiences, about, uh, about Sofia's work, about my work, about uh, Pavel's impressions of uh, the things we talk about, <laughs> just listen through it. Uh, we would be very happy if you do that. So what? Uh, so what's uh, the timeline? And and uh, you've uh, uh, from now on, from this very day, everything is starting to move real quickly, right? It really already started to move uh, very quickly, and uh, even uh, 
it sort of uh, have, have, has been bumped uh, a bit because initially we planned to move uh, somewhere at the end of April and now we're moving on the 1st of April and that's not, not an April Fool's joke or something. <laughs> And there are some things that are uh, quite important concerning uh, how iBook mining will work in these uh, uh, upcoming weeks because due to just amount of uh, stuff we need to do, uh, I will temporarily close the shop, uh, I guess, either on 23rd or 24th of uh, May, March. So it, it will happen already in a couple of days. And uh, I, I, I won't accept any orders uh, until we're just a bit settled in France and I need to receive all our uh, printers uh, from, from the moving company and uh, I need to understand how to set up my new workshop and all that stuff. So uh, there will be a pause maybe of, of uh, two or three or four weeks, I, I'm not sure yet, but it will definitely happen. Uh, all the orders that are already there I will process them before uh, we move to France. And uh, well, I guess that's the most important thing. And but, but by the way, at the same time, uh, Pavel and I will plan to continue working on our podcast and uh, we will continue recording uh, new videos. So there will be some mi mixed uh, backgrounds on my side, I guess, because some of the, some of the podcasts we recorded in February and March will will will, will be published in, in April and May because we have a, lo a lot a long queue of uh, of guests uh, aligned and uh, some of them will be published faster probably so yeah. So speaking of moving, uh, most of the things you are taking with uh, 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 with you from Holland to France are probably your things. So twenty four. <laughs> So what, 2,400 books, uh, 11 <laughs> printers. <laughs> um, yeah, so when we had the movers coming to assess how much stuff we have, and I was like, we don't have much stuff. I don't have much clothes or anything, and we don't have that much furniture, which are our own. We don't have beds or like being drawers or anything like that. Uh, but then we started to look around, and Stefan was like, this bench, and this bench, and these eight 3D printers, and these books, and this thing, and also I have in the storage, and this and this. And I'm like, that's quite a lot. And then the company came back to us and said, oh, we need two days to, to pack all your stuff. And I'm like, well, when we were leaving Moscow, we literally had a couple of boxes. Like, we, we didn't have much when we were moving at the time. They still had a lot of tools moving, and I remember they were looking at it and it was like, what is that? Like, there are so many knives, there are so many different like, things. And like, he's a bookbinder. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, this is the thing. Um, but now it's it's much more. And the, the challenge is, and Stefan kind of touched upon it, that is that we're going to move to the temporary housing, obviously. And yesterday was announced that, um, yesterday, which is meaning Thursday. Um, was yesterday me the meaning 18th of March, because, yeah. yeah. Uh, I yeah. guess I guess the video will be published in a couple of days. <laughs> yeah, so it was announced that Paris is going into another lockdown for a month, uh, which means that uh, our transition will be not as smooth as we hoped would be. Uh, and we are going to live in a temporary housing first, uh, which is close to Louvre, which is fantastic. But in a lockdown, probably we're not going to be able to visit it that much. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it will take time for us to find the permanent housing and therefore to uh, move all of the stuff for Stefan's work. And therefore, we're kind of planning accordingly, but we're trying to make it as smooth as possible. Uh, but it's going to be a bit of a challenge, as 
a lot of things when you're moving countries. Trust me, there's a lot of things you need to take care of uh, when you're trying to move from one country to another, especially when you're not European citizen and then you need to get visas and things like this. It's, it's a whole hustle um, to move around. And speaking of visas, just today you had to go to Belgium to get your visas yeah. for the second time in two weeks. Yeah. Yeah, yep. it's, it's a bit bizarre. And the thing is that the, just for those who don't know, the French consulate um, in Netherlands is not um, releasing the visas player. They're not doing the visa process. They're busy with other stuff. So all the people from Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg are supposed to go to Brussels to get the visa there. And uh, for us, it meant that within the lockdown, we had to go there twice, first to submit the application, and then to collect our visas and put them in the passport. And the thing is that when we submitted it, the lady, the clerk who was processing the application, she told us, oh yeah, the maximum processing time is around 15 days. And I was like, okay, great. great. We're going to have like maybe 10 days in average. We're going to get our passport by the end of March. And then we're going to kind of slowly moving. Uh, and then in literally two days, we got the mail saying, oh, your visa is granted. Please come on Monday. And it was Friday. And I was like, we cannot just jump and go to Belgium and get our passports. That requires certain planning, especially considering we don't have a car. So yeah, today we went to Belgium and moved back. So we, in order, because of COVID and all of the things, we're trying to avoid all the contacts and everything to not spend more time than needed in the in the country. Therefore, it was like literally back and forth. Uh, in the morning, we woke up, got in the car, drove to Belgium, gave them the passports, waited for a couple of hours, got the passports and went back. And now we're... Uh, recording this podcast. So fun times. Yeah, yeah I, I guess I guess for Russians or maybe for Americans or some other people who live in large countries, it's it's not such a big deal because it's like a two two and a half hour drive. So if you live in Moscow, it's like uh, uh, driving to That's the next the end major of Moscow. city, or maybe just through Moscow because sometimes it takes two or three hours just to you know drive through the Moscow traffic. So it's it's not not a long journey, but uh, yeah, here you have to go in, in in a different country to you know to apply for visas. <laughs> it's it's a bit strange. So could we roll back a bit? Uh, could you elaborate on this temporary thing? So your uh, the end point of your journey where you're gonna live currently will be not far from Paris, probably Versailles. Yeah. You So, yeah. my... uh, but before that, and for an not unclear period of time, you'll have to live in another place. How far from uh, from Paris? Uh, it's always the case in the moving for me uh, that the, my company pays for three months of temporary housing. In order for you not to be forced to immediately find the permanent housing, you can look around, you can understand where do you want to live what's going on, see the places on your tempo, and um, then decide. We wanted to get the permanent housing immediately before the transfer, because we wanted to move from our home to another home. Uh, yeah, especially especially as, you, as, as you can really, you can, you can just drive to Paris from, uh, from yeah. Leiden, and uh, it's, it's like a six hour drive, so we can drive there and come back. But with, uh, with all the COVID stuff, it was just unrealistic to do that. Yeah, it was unrealistic. It was risky. It required quarantine uh, in the Netherlands, which we didn't want to do. And there was a lot of complications. So we decided to skip the pre-transfer trip, which we were entitled to, and move directly to, to Paris with temporary housing for a couple of weeks in the center of Paris. So it's in the second district, and it's a very fancy location. 
thanks to my company for paying for that. I would not be able to pay for that myself. Um, therefore, we can enjoy a bit of time there, walking around and seeing the things uh, as tourists a bit. Uh, but then the idea is that our, my office, the, my company is located in Massey, uh, which is the like close suburb to Paris, um, but it's outside of Paris. And therefore, in order to have enough space in our apartment and to not pay a crazy amount, which you would pay in Paris, um, we decided to look around uh, closer to Versailles. And why Versailles is because, um, as Stefan, I'm sure, mentioned a couple of times, we live in Leiden uh, in the Netherlands, which is the most beautiful town I've ever seen. And in this year of a pandemic, as I'm working from home and Stefan is working from home and we have our own routine of like walking around, enjoying the canals and the houses and spectacular views and the parks and everything. We understood how important it is to be surrounded by beautiful things and not just industrial places or anything boring. So when I was thinking about France, I was like, obviously you can live in Paris. That's an obvious choice, but that's quite expensive. And also it's far away from office. And like, there are certain things which uh, are not great about that. Uh, I was like, but we can live in such a same level of cute town as Leiden. It's not going to be as like Poland type of cute, but it's going to be France type of cute. And I was like, which town feels okay-ish? Um, and we were looking through and I was like, oh, Versailles, that seems royal enough for us. We probably should end up there. Maybe we're not going to be exactly in Versailles. We're going to look around and see what type of things will speak to us in a way. It will feel right. Uh, but funny enough, even probably know better than anybody else. We lived in Moscow in Russia, which is a huge city, right? And you you have everything there um, at any point of time in the day, in the night, and at, at all times you have so many things to do. So when we were moving to the Netherlands, everybody was telling me like, you have to live in Amsterdam. You have to live where the things are. Uh, Amsterdam is the place to be. You're young, you need to be in the capital. Uh, what they didn't understand, though, is that Amsterdam, even though it's the biggest city in the Netherlands, it's still 20 times smaller than Moscow. Therefore, I was like, it's still not going to be on par of my experience in Moscow. So we decided to live in a cute small town, university town, per se, and um, we never regretted the decision. So with France, we're trying to also find a solution which would be uh, more beautiful, more calm, and with the pandemic specifically in a year, I realized you don't really need things to do on a daily basis just because we're kind of self-contained people. Um, but also if we want to do things, we can go to Paris at any time. Uh, and I'm sure Stefan will tell, talk about the book fairs and the arts and crafts and the fairs and all of the things, amazing things, especially he's, he was so sad yesterday because of lockdown news that he is not going to be able to visit antique stores. And I was like, only you could be upset about antique stores being closed for another month. I'm like, I'm worried about my manicure and stuff like this. And he's worried about books and antique stores. So, yeah. Yeah, and another concern of mine, besides, uh, you know, prices of uh, uh, rental apartments and all that stuff was that I plan to have a workshop uh, at some point in the, I hope, nearest future. And uh, if we are, if we will live outside of Paris, it may be easier for me to find some semi-industrial location uh, uh, within driving distance where I can set up my shop, and uh, uh, that would be, I guess, cheaper than something in Paris. <laughs> so, well, 
Well, in Paris, you'll be lucky to afford a place where you can turn your living room into your uh, workshop, <laughs> let, <laughs> let alone having an actual workshop. Well, we are lucky in a way because uh, Netherlands is not the cheapest place in Europe. So, <laughs> well, we, we sort of already have our expectations adjusted <laughs> accordingly. So, I didn't have a workshop, uh, a separate workshop here in the Netherlands, and one of the one of the reasons was uh, uh, the prices. And uh, uh, well, I'm quite happy to have a workshop uh, here at home, but. Uh, now, as, as you said, as, as you and Sofia said, uh, I, I have something like uh, 11 printers, uh, uh, three of which are not working at the moment. So uh, both of you were right. <laughs> uh, but uh, all this machinery has uh, to have its uh, own separate space uh, uh, that is separated uh, from, you know, living people. <laughs> yeah, and when we started living here, we had, like, we were lucky enough to rent very spacious apartment with very big living room with huge ceilings and all of that. Uh, and as we decided not to live in Amsterdam, it was also cheaper than what we would afford in Amsterdam. In Amsterdam, we probably for the same money would afford barely two bedroom apartment, probably one bedroom uh, with a small living room. Uh, so initially I was like, that's so great. We have so much space, but some like pragmatical part of me was like, it's not rational not to use this space. Like there's so much just air there. And then well, I so use I it like, all. Yeah, hold my beer. And then he put the bed, like he literally surrounded the space by his stuff. And it it was a very slow process. So I didn't even feel it that much. Like he started with one bench and then another bench and then printer here, printer there, the drawer, then the tools, the things. And then we were just surrounded by it. And now that like, I'm lucky enough not to react to white noise that much. I, my brain just ignores it. And therefore, when I hear the printers, sometimes Stefan is like doing something with the printer. It's like, look, listen, do you hear how quiet it is? And I was like, I didn't care either way. Like for me, it was not loud before, so I don't care. But when they all are off, sometimes we have like a Shabbat or something when the printers are resting. I was like, oh, that's actually really nice not to have the noise and just be in our living room without this stuff. So that's definitely a goal to have a separate space. We initially thought about renting a house with the warm basement or something like this to completely separate the space between our living space and the working space. Uh, I'm not sure it's the thing in France um, that we will be able to easily find, but we for sure will create a separate yeah, space. It, it for, definitely for, may, be, may be more reasonable to rent a separate workshop. Yeah, we'll so we shall see. So you're, you're moving to a temporary place. You're taking your printers there. You're setting up. No, they're kept no, somewhere so. in storage and then they'll uh, arrive at your permanent so place. Movers yeah. of my company, thankfully, they're allowing us 90 days to figure out where we want to put stuff. Um, so usually what happens is like you have temporary housing for 90 days and the movers hold your stuff for 90 days as well. And therefore, once you have a permanent housing and you move in, you tell the movers, please bring the boxes. And then you spend six months trying to unpack them. I remember when we moved to the Netherlands, first of all, I like, I immediately jumped into work and we arrived the 10th of February in 2018. And since day one, I was like, work, work, work. And I didn't have any time to figure out anything. And in the Netherlands, you cannot watch uh, properties and like to, to, to go through apartments when you want to lease. 
um, without uh, on the weekends. You only can do it on the work days. And I didn't have any space to do it on the work day because we had like big plan coming and things which needed to be taken care of. And um, literally once I was done with the plan, I was like, okay, I have one week to find place to live because it's already in the end of three months. I was like, we were so, so desperate that on the day when we finally went uh, apartment shopping, um, I was like, uh, if we don't find today, we're pretty much homeless. Like <laughs> we don't have a place to live. Uh, so thankfully um, we looked through like eight apartments and we find found the one and it was available and they allowed us to move in quite quickly. So it was all good, but it was risky. Like it was on the borderline level. So when we were, we are moving now, I'm like, I don't want that. Like I, first of all, living in temporary housing, it looks fancy. They always use it. The like interiors and everything is almost like in a luxury hotel. Uh, so you feel like everything super fancy and you're like very important person. Uh, but then when you try to leave there, you understand that none of the things working as they should. Like they look cool, but they're not livable at all. The ergonomics of the things are horrible. They're like, people don't think about functionality of the space. It just looks cool. And, and therefore, after three months in the, um, when we lived in Amsterdam in the temporary housing, I was like, I'm, I'm so done with this flat. Like we need to find some place which is livable. But the thing is that when we moved, my job at the time, and it's crazy to think about it, because it's very pre-COVID times. Um, I, my job is glo was global role and I was supposed to travel a lot. So I, in one month I've been to Mexico, to Spain, to France, uh, and US in the, like within the month. And uh, I didn't have time to be at home to like settle in or, or figure anything. So we literally moved to the permanent housing. My fantastic husband was trying to kind of settle in and do some stuff, but there are certain unpacking which I needed to do as well. And I think it took us literally four months to finally unpack all of the boxes and make sure that everything is where it should be. And at some point I was like, I just cannot go on like that. I just want to be home. I just want to spend weekends home. Funny enough, I spent two years traveling like crazy. So when pandemic happened, um, silver lining for me I spent a year at home so I was like finally I can stay with my husband enjoy the quality time walk around and not not fly all the time everywhere and so that was cool uh, but as a learning from what we experienced in the Netherlands we uh, realized that we when you move in a temporary housing for 90 days it's almost like you move twice because you first kind of build some stuff in in the first place and then you have to move it all like it's a hustle. You it's much better to spend like two weeks and then move directly to the permanent housing. So yeah, we are not gonna have any stuff. Uh, basically, we're gonna have like two suitcases and that's it, just with the clothes and stuff. Um, and then hopefully we'll find the permanent housing. What I realized today is that in Paris they're now doing the virtual tours for the so through WhatsApp or something. So you're calling in and they're showing you apartments and you're like, okay, this is cool, this is not. I cannot imagine how we can rent a house for that, but that's probably what they're doing because of the COVID. Uh, so we shall see. That's going to be fun. <laughs> so if you mentioned boxes and unpacking, and uh, uh, there was some uh, idea that came to me and that I wanted to share for quite some time. Uh, I guess uh, some of the uh, some of the customers of uh, iBook Binding. Uh, so that's uh, usually the packaging I, I send larger stuff in, I mean, the cardboard boxes are used 
and uh, uh, this is sort of uh, I don't know I'm 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 a bit proud of it or 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 something that uh, I I haven't bought a single uh, a single cardboard box uh, for packaging in these three years. So I I always reuse the packaging I've got from I don't know ordering uh, materials or something like that and. Uh, uh, I, 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 I sort of like this idea of, of reusing the packaging because why, why should you buy more cardboard when you can use cardboard that you already have? And uh, uh, with the boxes that, uh, that we had, uh, uh, we've got after we moved uh, uh, the moving boxes, uh, it, 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 uh, three years has passed. And the last boxes, the last of the boxes that were uh, uh, used for moving our stuff, I used only months ago. <laughs> Three years time. <laughs> yeah, and and now it's it's like we have twice twice as much or maybe three times as much stuff, so there will be much more boxes. Well, there are. Well, you many... also sell a few times more. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. But <laughs> I'm just I'm just trying to you know calculate how much time it will take for for me to use up all these new boxes. I guess. The only Maybe thing before, which I'm glad about is that we got the more next stuff. Yeah. We got more stuff, which is your stuff, but not my stuff. Yeah. So you're going to unpack that. And I'm not going to be bothered by that. I'm going to like yeah. preserve yeah. The, our bedroom. That's it. Uh, yeah, but it's, it's, it's very funny. Also, we were discussing how we need to, like all of the products which we found in the Netherlands and which we grew to love uh, comparing to Russia. And it was not easy, like what cheese we like, what we like what type of products and groceries we enjoy uh, and there's like now we need to do all of that again for France because they probably have different products and different specifics French, which is exciting yeah speaking uh, speaking of French you both will have to learn French this this time there's no chance like you're probably your your vocabulary in Dutch is probably on the level two coffees uh, and one potato. <laughs> yeah, My father okay. is an engineer, yeah. we have a cat. Yeah, ik ben Stefan, ik woon in Leiden, and some stuff like that. Well, I, 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 I can definitely read some simple uh, stuff and I can, I can I can sort of leave, uh, read some uh, some books uh, dedicated to book arts and bookbinding because uh, I know the topic and it's much easier to understand uh, the the what what's written in there. But of course, sometimes you can you can understand even I don't know eighty percent of the uh, of, of what's written in the book, and then uh, these twenty percent are the most important, and uh, everything like turns from from uh, from from head to toes or something like that. So. Uh, yeah, it, it, uh, it's, it, it's the same for, for me with German. I can sort of understand what art, art history text is about, but I can't read the recipe. <laughs> I can't ask uh, directions. Uh, well, yeah. So when Dutch customers uh, write to me in in Dutch, I, I usually can understand what they are writing to me, but. I, I cannot reply to them because it's just uh, all the all the words flow away at the moment I, I start to try you know writing something and the uh, uh, same things happens to uh, when, when you're trying to, to, to speak and it's, and, it's really hard to and, not and you, because everybody you, speaks English and I mean you don't even live in Amsterdam you live in Leiden I mean again it's a tourist town okay it's a university town but still you can uh, 
you can live without any language at, at all. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is that I try to learn that because when uh, people, so some of the experts with which I met in Russia never had the effort to learn Russian. And I was like, that's very disrespectful to the country. You spend like three years here and you don't learn Russian. Even the basic things, that's kind of offensive. So I was like, I'm going to be different. I'm going to respect the country. I'm going to learn the language. I'm going to try my best. So we started learning Dutch and I was very motivated. I was like, yeah, I want to do this. It's interesting. Uh, I like to challenge myself in certain ways. And then I tried it to speak. And the thing is that the Dutch people are so nice that they're, when the moment they see that they struggle, even a little bit, they switch to English immediately. Like immediately, they are not even giving you space to try to build your phrase. And, and then at some point I got completely discouraged. I was like, I can like, there's no space for me to practice because first of all, it's not needed at all because they all speak perfect English. Even to the level, I think in three years in the Netherlands, I met like two or three people who didn't speak English. All the rest, at least in the intermediate or high intermediate level, fantastic. I also think that they appreciate the fact, they think that the Dutch is very complex language, which I don't necessarily think so but it's complex enough not to be easy to pick up in like two seconds. And considering that it's a relatively small language in terms of the amount of people who speaks it, um, so that they try their best to use English. And also, which is interesting comparing to Russia, for example, they have the majority of the media sources being in English, not being dubbed in Dutch. So they watch movies and TV shows and things like this without Dutch. Uh, but, uh, but with subtitles, I with see. subtitles, yeah. But they they all learn English from very young age, which is very very impressive. Um, and therefore, you can get around super easily. And when you call whatever organization or place, the first question which you ask is speak English, and they all do. Like it's never like now. I've been terrified. I called yesterday a French bank, and I was like, how are we gonna ask them to speak to me in English? They the first person said that he is not speaking well, even though he was speaking well. He said he's not speaking English well, so he, he asked me if he can reroute me to another person. I was like, yeah, absolutely. Then they routed me, and the second person, I think, spoke worse than the first one <laughs> in English. But they, they were super nice, and they helped me, so I appreciate that as well. But uh, I think in France specifically, the, the kind of attitude towards people who don't want to learn French is not great. Uh, and I appreciate that. I understand that. I it's a respectful thing to do when you move to the country to learn the language, and I will make every effort to do so. Uh, or, my or at least job... to try to. Yeah. You do. But... You, you do. Uh, wait, Sonia, you do know it's a trap. I mean, uh, French people, from my personal experience, I don't want to generalize. They don't only hate it when you don't speak French. But when they you do it, it well. they hate it even more when you make mistakes. Absolutely. Uh, well, it's a bit of a stereotype. They uh, appreciate the effort, of course. They're going to correct you. That's also true, which is sometimes very discouraging, to say the least. Uh, but I think they're nice people as well. They're just a bit more harsh on the outside, <laughs> almost as Russians are. Unlike Russians who will compliment you and then will immediately start teaching you profanities. <laughs> uh, the thing is, yes, yeah, so... Uh, my job isn't requiring uh, French because it's more of a regional job, so I can speak in English. Um, speak English the um, during work hours, though I hope to be back in the office at some point in 2021. And then specifics of French offices that everybody speaks French and not English there. 
Um, so all the communications and everything, like for example, in our Russian office, there was always double communication in Russian and English because we had a lot of experts living there and we needed to uh, accommodate them. In French office, the idea is if you're living in France, you need to speak French. Like you, you need to catch up. If, if you, even if you don't, then you need to figure this out. I know the guy who moved there is a marketing director leading the team. Uh, he's Italian and um, he was like, I didn't have a chance to not learn French because in any meeting they switch to French immediately. They're not keeping in English. So he he's Italian, so it was easier for him, but he picked up the majority of the language in like three to four months, which is very impressive. Um, but now he speaks fluently French, so <laughs> the problem solved itself. But it's it's a, definitely a challenge. Um, but I'm very much looking forward to it because I think in France, uh, unlike in the Netherlands, you're very motivated to do so, like and to, to to learn the language and be accepted a bit more. And Stepan, you're probably going to have a leg up because of your childhood Romanian. Is there yeah, still yeah. any of it surviving? Well, yeah, it's 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 really strange because I I haven't really spoken uh, uh, Romanian at at, at length uh, since I was three years old or something. But it was my first language. But but I was was really small kid when I when I I spoke Romanian. Uh, but uh, somehow when uh, when I come to the country, and if if I spend there, I don't know, a week, uh, or for example, when I go to mountains and spend three days without any connection to Russian, you know, Russian Russian language, and my my mother and uh, my grandmother who speak Russian, it suddenly starts to come back and comes back pretty fast. For example, somebody asks me how to go to this uh, this mountain or something, and. I understand that uh, uh, phrases come to mind like like magic, and it's 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 really a strange feeling. It's a great feeling, but I don't know how it works. But yeah, the, the brain works interestingly. <laughs> so yeah, I, I I hope it will help a bit, and uh, I I definitely we already started to to you know to uh, to do some exercises with Duolingo and and stuff and. Uh, uh, I, I definitely see lots of similar things there, and it helps and helps to you know to uh, all these parallel uh, things. They they help to uh, foster grasp the, the understanding of the language. Stefan is selling himself short because the usually when we like fly with Air France, he understands what they are saying when they speak in French. Um, they he can read the menus in the restaurants. He can understand the newspapers and stuff. And I'm like, how do you do that? You don't speak French, and you're like, here's the roads are similar and the structure. I understand that. Like for me, it looks like Chinese. I I have no idea what's written there. And he's like, no, no, no. I can understand here and there. So he obviously have a advantage versus me, and I'm completely oblivious to anything. But I'm you have a so different hard. advantage. You will have lots of French colleagues and. Uh, Hopefully, yeah. at some moment, you will return to office and we'll have, uh, you know, more, more, also, uh, more practice. I hope that they're nice enough to speak English to me initially, at least. Uh, but yeah, I hope to be surrounded by French all the time. And therefore, I hope to pick up, at least to separate the words from each other and understand what they're saying uh, on the basic level. And I used to think about myself that I'm not a language person, that I cannot speak fluently any of the languages except for Russian, um, which is funny because now I 
quite often being told that, oh, you're so lucky that you're fluent in English. I was like, I'm not lucky. It took literally 14 years to master. Um, but it, it took a while for me to, to get over the barrier and all of that. So, and I hate this first months of learning the language because you cannot, you kind of learn the words, you kind of know the phrases, but then the moment the first dialogue you have, you're like, and then you're almost like blubbering fish. Um, so I cannot wait till we get to the level where I can have conversations uh, with French people and understand what they're saying and not be lost. But it and, will take some and time. the thoughts from Russian and English, do you have any languages behind your belt? I, uh, I remember something about basic Hebrew, but... It was a thing. Uh, I was learning Hebrew at some point. Um, because maybe at some point I thought that uh, we will move to Israel or something, but also just to be closer to my roots. Um, I did the first level and my teacher was saying that I'm doing it very well. So I'm picking up very quickly and I understand the basics very well. Uh, though I was suffering from such a lack of motivation to progress further because all of my friends from Israel, they speak English or Russian or whatever language there is. Uh, and I didn't really need it for work or for anything else. It was just more my curiosity, but it required quite significant time commitment to, to, to progress. And I was like, that's not gonna work out with the amount of time I spent working. Um, I cannot put the language on top, which I don't need for work or for any type of situation except for visiting Israel, which by the way, I haven't been there for six years. So it's not uh, the most practical thing to learn. Uh, I also, it was, it's a funny story. So I, when I was 17, I decided that my problem with languages maybe is not the language problem, but my problem with English specifically. And I was like, I'm going to go and try to learn German because German is a structural language. I love math. I understand the structure. I can follow the rules. Uh, maybe it will be better. So I went to the Yote uh, Institute in, in Moscow. And I was like, I want the most basic level, A1, from the scratch, from the alphabet, I want to learn. And they're like, yeah, absolutely. They gave me the questionnaire, I filled the questionnaire, answer that I never ever in my life learned German. So it is what it is. And they're like, yeah, absolutely. And then I started lessons and I kind of started picking up on the fact that everybody in my group kind of knows some German. And we started not from alphabet, but from like deep immersion into let's talk about the news in German. And I'm like, something is going wrong here. But it, I was young and I didn't know at the time how to raise my voice. And it's like, I told them that I have no, no uh, proficiency in German. So obviously they put me in the needed group and now it's just the immersive type of situation when they need to figure out what's going on, learn the language as you go, like all of these type of fancy techniques. And uh, so it took me, I think, five lessons to come to the administration. It's like, I feel like there are like trains ahead of me, like that I cannot keep up at all. Because in the second or the third lessons, they're like, you need to prepare the topic of the news, which you're going to talk about. And it's like, what do you mean talk about? I cannot even say hi to Sophia. Like, I'm, I'm so not there. Um, and uh, they were like, Oh yeah, it's an A2 group. Like it's the people who learn German at some point in time and they have some basics and they need to just refresh it and then move on. And it's like, what am I doing there? It's like, oh, probably there was no spaces in A1. So we put you in A2 and you, you can use this as an opportunity to jumpstart your language and pick up and da, da, da. And I was like, no, just no. 
And they moved me to A1, which was a great thing to do. But at the time, they already were far ahead from the beginning. And I was like, I'm lost. So the whole experience was horrible because I felt completely inadequate the whole time. I could not speak. I could not do anything. And what I decided, that it's my problem, that's a language problem, that the German, English, whatever it is, not going to work out. And at the time, it was, I, I think it was the first year of university, I decided that I will never, ever, ever use languages as my job. I will only work in Russian. Uh, I will work in the Russian company. I will avoid English at all costs. Um, and that's my path. Um, and at fourth year in university, I kind of figured out that it's kind of limiting my opportunity just to do what I want to do. And I didn't even know at the time what I want to do. But I was like, that's probably not it. Like, I need to expand my horizons a bit. And also, I was ashamed all the time. I was like, I don't speak English and I cannot. I, it, my problem was I had a very nice vocabulary and I could read, but I could not speak and I could not understand what people were saying. Like, I could not recognize the words and understand what's like. And we've been taught British English my whole life in, in, in school and the, the like queen type of accent. And I could not pick it up. Like, I could not understand anything. Uh, so it took a while for me to figure out what I need to do in order to make sense out of this. And what we were doing is we were watching Desperate Housewives season seasons because it was the most simple English there is. We were first watching it with English subtitles, oh, Russian subtitles, then with English subtitles, then without subtitles. Then we watched some other shows. And um, for a year, I was doing that. And I was like, now finally, I feel like I can understand American English. So I probably should go... Um, to the US and, and try to break through my uh, language barrier. What was funny though, I went to Boston and I lived in the host family and the host mother uh, was talking to me in the first day and she's like, you have a pretty nice language uh, level. And I was like, absolutely not, you're delusional, that's not happening. And she's like, no, 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 when you're gonna pass the test in the school, um, you're gonna be six out of nine. I was like, no, like I, I'm pretty sure I'm three or four. She's like, no, trust me, I see a lot of students every year and like every month, uh, you're going to be six out of nine. I passed the test, I was six out of nine, which was higher intermediate level. And that's a joke, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, but then I was kind of, as I was there for a month and I was like, I need to get the most out of it. It costs a lot of money and uh, I'm living alone uh, because Stefan was in, in Moscow at the time. And I was like, I need to do something. So I started and even though it was all in present simple and all in the wrong ways and, and it was horrible, uh, I, I was talking. And by the end of the month, I was like, I cannot shut up. As you can see, I'm a very talkative person. So the, um, after that, I was like, oh, you see, I can like I can say something and I can explain to people from, I don't know, Venezuela or Italy something about myself. So that's great. Uh, and then I came back and started watching much more TV shows because I always need a reason to watch TV shows and say that it's for educational purposes. Um, yeah, and then since then, uh, then I didn't avoid the company with English. Uh, though in the beginning, it was very terrifying to put the, like uh, I was in a research agency and I needed to put together the reports in English and I was like, how oh, I'm gonna do it. What, what if I'm making mistakes? Spoiler alert, everybody makes mistakes, so it's not a big deal. Uh, especially when you're presenting it to a Russian client who kind of speaks English to you just because they're in an international company. Um, but now it's not a problem. But now it's French, so we need to start watching French TV shows and <laughs> trying to figure out French. Uh, I'm sure there, there is a French 
version of Desperate Housewives. I hope so. I hope so. I'm I'm really I'm really uh, waiting for the moment when I will be able to uh, read uh, Jules Verne uh, in in French because he definitely was one of my favorite uh, uh, authors in my childhood and we had this uh, uh, blue uh, collection of of his works in in uh, the Soviet edition and I, I read it like from the first volume to the last volume four or five times so yeah uh i i hope what about three well i i I read it many times as well but uh uh, i i'm not sure i want to return to to uh yuma notre dame de paris well yeah well french literature is, is 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 great literature there are so many so many great authors and uh, so many great books uh, so there is definitely uh, you know things to choose from and uh, uh, modern french culture is also uh, very very impressive so there is there is a lot of things to to, you know, to see there to read there to to listen to uh, well we'll see when we achieve this level of understanding of and comprehension of language <laughs> that will allow us to you know to enjoy all of this I personally uh, have always been wondering how good were Pushkin or Tolstoy in their French prose. I mean, those pages and pages of French in uh, War and Peace, are they any good? Good question. I also wonder how they translate it in French. Like when you read War and Peace in French, did they translate it to, I don't know, German? Or something like to, to kind of mix <laughs> the blur of like two different languages or something? I was like, how did they do that? Also, fun fact. Um, so I was talking to my Dutch teacher at the time, who is a great guy. Uh, and uh, he was telling me that he was reading Crime and Punishment. And uh, he was like, the problem with Russian names specifically is that we use a lot of diminutive uh, short versions, right? So the name Anastasia would be Nastinka and Nastichka and Anastasia Petrovna and Nastusha and whatever it is. And he was like, I read 60 pages before I understood that, uh, I don't know, Sonichka and Sofia and all of this is the same character. Like, I thought that it's all different people because they're all referring to them in different ways. And I'm like, oh my God, I never thought about that because apparently they're, they're like the whole culture around shortening names and changing names in such a, so usually like the Richard is Dick or like Philip is Phil, right? So it's a very common way of, it's, it's 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 funny that all three of us uh we have uh, uh our uh long versions of names and short versions of names in english they have uh exactly the same length yeah so i am stepan and stopa and in english transliteration it will be uh, the same amount the same of amount. Uh, letters yeah. so it wouldn't be shorter but in russian it's 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 shorter stopa is shorter than stepan you, you are uh, Sofia and Sonia. In English, it will be all the same, but in Russian, it's, Pavel is Pavel or Pasha. It's also the same in, in, in English translation, but Pasha is shorter in Russian than Pavel. So it's, my... Uh, my, my, my friend had a web, uh, website, scientific uh, website, and he had to clarify in the list of his uh, publications that Alyosha is indeed uh, considered Alexei. a shorter form of Alexei, which <laughs> is definitely isn't when you write it. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> down in English. I was, so when I was first moving outside of Russia, where it was obvious that I'm Sonia, like nobody doubted that ever, and Russia is the most common shortening of Sophie is Sonia. Uh, so I didn't expect any problems with that. I was like, of course, like every name has some short version or some, something. And then I was introduced to the team, which was very multinational. There were French people, there were English people, there were like different types of people. And uh, so my boss, who was my boss in Russia as well, uh, introduced me as Sofia Chizhova. So it was the proper name. And then throughout the two years team meeting, as he knew me as Sonia, obviously from Russia, he referred to me Sonia multiple times. And by the end of the meeting, my colleagues, bless their hearts, uh, was messaging my other colleagues who are Russians saying like, do we have two people doing the same job, like Sofia and Sonia? Because apparently in the US and Europe, everywhere, it's two different names, like completely different names. They are not short versions of each other. They're completely different. And they're like, and then my friend was like, yeah, Sonia is a short version of Sofia. And it's like, and they were saying it in English, obviously. And I was like, yeah, but it's the same amount of letters. And she's like, trust me, in Russian, it's four and five. It's like, it still doesn't sound short. And I was like, yeah, but Sophie is their official and full name and you would not refer like this to the person outside of like, I don't know, school or medical institution or something like this. And like on a casual basis, you would always call the person Sonia because that's a normal way of shortening the name. And I was like, yeah, we still don't get it. And then they didn't understand it to the full extent. And they thought that I personally prefer to be called not by my name, but by other name. So they told all of my colleagues in R&D and everywhere, she's like, you never should refer to her as Sophia. You need to refer to her as Sonia. And I didn't even know that this is happening. I was like, I'm all fine. And I have a call with RNG colleagues who are like the most respectful British people. And then they're like, oh, Sophia. And I was like, so, so sorry, Sonia. And I'm like, you should not be sorry. That's my name. And it's like, do you have two names? I was like, it's not two names. It's a short version of the full name. It's like, but it's not short. I was like, I cannot explain it again. <laughs> well, the other, the other thing with your name is that uh, uh, you're not Sophia, but you're Sophia. So it's it's also well, a bit of a difference. <laughs> yeah. I'm all over it. I'm like, call me whatever. I don't care one bit. Uh, in France, it may be Sophia or something like this. Um, and then we, we, we shall see when we, when we get in this out. Uh, but every time I moved, so the last role, I told everybody that I'm Sophia. I never introduced myself as Sonia. But then there was a couple of people who knew me from my past life. And they started calling me Sonia. And everybody's like, why do we, some people call you Sonia and some people call you Sophia? And I was like, that's a sh long story. I'm not going to get into it. Um, but then my new boss in the French co company, he knows me very well as Sonia. So he is now confusing everybody. <laughs> like, how I should be calling um anyway it's gonna be all fine but the the fun thing i was like it can be sonichka or sonichka or sonchik or sonyachik there's like 25 variations of the name all of them which are shorter and like diminutive type of stuff uh you will never will be able to figure it out unless you're russian like it's a, it's a customs of the country which everybody knows and everybody understands if you are Russian, but if you are not, that's a problem. But I never thought about application of this problem to the literature because apparently when they translate the names, they're not making them back to the original name, they're, they're preserving the form. And Stepan, you're definitely becoming Stefan from now on. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay with uh, uh, any, I guess, uh, versions of, of my name and uh, uh, 
Uh, some people try to try to you know to to pronounce it correctly, Stepan. Uh, others uh, try or not try. Uh, I, I sometimes sometimes some of the customers, for example, uh, write to me like Stefan, and then they uh, send a message. Oh, sorry, I I, I misspelled your name, and um, yeah, it's it's not a real problem for me. And uh, I know that some people are for for example there are uh, Stefan, Stephen, Stefan uh, in 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 different uh, uh, letters, and some people really. Really, really, really prefer to be called in 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 a particular particular way, and that's their absolute right. But in Romania, I'm Stefan. In uh, in 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 Russia, I'm Stepan. Uh, uh, I, I I was I was baptized at some moment in my childhood, and I'm uh, Stefan in 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 Russian Christian tradition. So uh, there are so many versions already, and I'm okay with any of them. I like I like any, all of them. So <laughs> anything would work for me. Uh, I, I wanted to add some more technical details about our move, and uh, for those who got. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I will post some timestamps time under the video, so hopefully some of the people will will decide to check them and maybe maybe skip or maybe watch through. I don't oh, know. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, maybe I will edit this part in the beginning. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, but I need to uh, get more wine first. <laughs> so anyway, Sonia, I wanted to ask you this. What did you think when he first started bookbinding? And when did you realize that this hobby was not going away? Um, it's an interesting question. I knew that he has a background in bookbinding um, from early days. Uh, he never pursued it in, in any significant way. And then I remember that um, it was 2015. He was in U.S., right, and studying in, in the bookbinding school. When he messaged me and said, oh, I want to buy this website, uh, which is called ibookbinding.com. And I'm like, buy the website? What does it even mean? And he was like, yeah, it's the thing. The guy who was leading it, he's selling it. And it's like around this much. And I'm like, this much? That's much. And uh, he's like, yeah, but this is once in a lifetime opportunity. It's already kind of built up in a way. Uh, there's already a robust base of the followers. Uh, they have Facebook page, which was very hot at the time. Uh, and then he showed me some stats saying like, oh, it's going to sell this. I'm going to be like this type of income and stuff like this. I looked for it and I was like, that's not going to be it. Like, it's not going to work. Like I work in marketing, I know how to build a case that something is should be working well, it's not gonna be. And I'm like, that doesn't make much sense. But I was like, are you passionate about it? Because he was just out of one month of uh, being on the course in the US uh, for specifically book binding. And I knew that it was passion of his. And I, I, and should, like, I should add that, that I was I, I I've been teaching bookbinding for some time already, yeah. and that was that was the reason uh, why oh. I decided to to go to United States to the American Academy of Bookbinding to study 
combining because I wanted to be sure that the things that I'm teaching, I know what I'm teaching and uh, to have this confidence, yeah, that's, uh, that I'm not teaching the wrong stuff. So yeah, I, I, I had some, you know, connection to bookbinding yeah, yeah. before, before we decided to buy bookbinding or before I persuaded you that we have to buy it. But let's be honest, he, oh, of course he had this hobby and all of this, but it was he is a person of many, many talents. So he has a lot of passion projects at any time. So it was just one of them. And I was like, I'm not sure how big it is. And also it's such an obscure thing to do. But at the time, and it was six years ago, it was like, yeah, that's one of the things he's doing. I'm not sure this is going to be a big thing. But then when he was asking for this significant investment, which we took a big hit on. And at the time, I was not that high up in the corporate world. And I didn't have that much income. Yeah, and I was working at school. Yeah, so, so it was a yeah. big investment with, with a bit of a lottery feeling to it. It's like the, the only thing which I thought about is that I knew that he was not the only one who wanted to buy it. So I was like, if something, we can resell it if it doesn't go as planned. Uh, but then at the same time, I was like, it's not like a car when which will go cheaper with time. This thing is not supposed to get cheaper because it's, uh, it's kind of a, it's only going to get better. So I'm like, we can try. That's not the worst thing to happen. Uh, even though when I was talking to my uh, friends and I was like, so my husband is buying a blog. And everybody was like, what? And I was like, blog about bookbinding. And people were like, you're just insane. Um, but I was all for it. Like the moment we decided to do that, I was like, okay, let's give it the best shot and, and see how it goes. And it took us uh, three more years, right? That you were working on your day job and then you did it as a hobby. You started teaching more and started doing the tools and the things, but it was still a side hustle while we were in Russia. But then when we moved out of Russia because of my job, um, Stefan was like, I, will, I want to give it a serious shot, like making it a full-time thing which was not easy to do from the beginning because it needed a lot of establishing the grounds. The, even though the website was great and the Etsy shop was great, it needed some proper ecosystem around it and the, the, the fantastic uh, platform which he's building still and uh, which is surrounded by many, many things of different sort like podcast and the store and the Instagram and Facebook and all of the things. Um, at the time, they were not as and not as obvious in, as a revenue streams, which he wanted to make them to be. Um, but at the time, I was like, we are full blast serious about that. This is the fantastic idea because in the end of the day, if it didn't work out, then oh well. If it would work out, it's like, that's perfect because I'm moving a lot for my job. And for any spouse in this situation, it's super hard to every time find a new job, find a new, if, especially if it's corporate world as well, it's a lot of interdependency in terms of the moving and, and not, none of the employers like that, right? So uh, I was like, if you're gonna have your own thing, which will work pretty much from wherever you are, that would be ideal. So I was all for it to work out. I was like, I want this to succeed because then it's gonna mean that he's gonna have a thing he's passionate about and he can pursue from any place. And then I'm gonna have a thing which I'm passionate about, which is my career. Uh, and it's a win-win for both of us and it's it's, kind of a perfect condition. But what's funny is that in the beginning, people were like, what your husband is doing for a living? He's like, he's a bookbinder. And people were like, what? He's like, he's doing tools for bookbinding. And I'm like, what? And like, you will figure this out. It's like, it's all good. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think I understood that it's serious in 2015 when he asked me to buy this website. And I'm like, 
he better be serious about that because we're investing a lot of money in it. Uh, so it should work out. Uh, and uh, but it was not immediate. Uh, so we didn't. I, I think it took some years to kind of make money back from the well, purchase. Well, it, it took more than four years to return yeah. the money that we. Uh... Yeah. Uh, paid for the website. So it was yeah. a huge investment, but I I don't re regret it even a slight bit because also I, I have to admit Stefan is a person of many many passions, I, ideas and projects, uh, but this one is the first time I see him consistently building something uh, super sustainably for many many years, being super passionate about not being tired of this because he finds all the different ways to make it fun and interesting for himself. Uh, and uh, when I saw that, I was like, all for it, all for it. That's fantastic. That's what you should do. And also, truth be told, I'm completely impressed by his genius in terms of merging the very humanitarian skills and very craft and art with the engineering and math and, and making it innovative and smart and merge the two, which I think is a very unique combination of skills, which not many people have because there are a lot of artsmen and craftsmen and there are a lot of engineers but there's not many people in between and i think it's a fantastic space to be well versed in both and it gives such a unique uh, vision on the things and innovating providing which is i think is spectacular thing to do and i honestly earn my money by doing powerpoint slides so i'm not procuring any of the <laughs> important things to the world and i'm not creating things myself so i'm always very proud that Stefan does that and that he is making lives of people better especially i'm so proud every time on in instagram somebody's mentioning tools and saying how much easier it makes their work and how better they are in what they're doing and quicker and more efficient and all of that that's fantastic that's the purpose to have is to make the life of people better and easier and uh, all of that so i i'm very proud of that thank you uh, could you perhaps celebrate on uh, your Instagram presence? What does it take? I mean, Stepa mentioned more than once that perhaps uh, the biggest marketing tool for, uh, for you nowadays is uh, the amount of time you put into your Instagram presence. Uh, how long did it take to work it up to this level and how much work do you have to put into it, uh, uh, say, every week? Because uh, the algorithm doesn't like uh, pauses and stuff. Yeah. So I think when we started, so initially Stefan has a huge presence on Facebook and it was the main selling point of this uh, whole blog thing. And so Stefan was like, yeah, sure, Facebook, we need to go Facebook. The whole thing is about Facebook. Facebook algorithm is not kind to group posts. It's not kind to any type of content which is doesn't get that much of engagement immediately. Uh, and therefore, even though our following on Facebook is huge, uh, considering uh, it's not growing that much and it's not that uh, engaged, engaged to the, what we're posting. So it has a certain... Uh, purpose for like if you want to share links or something people are more eager to go click on the link in Facebook than in, in Instagram just because it's easier to do you make one click while in Instagram you need to go oh please go to the bio and click the link and nobody does that um so this is the one thing but Instagram I was very annoying about it I was like you have to grow your Instagram that's the thing this is the main marketing tool just trust me 
let's do that. And he was like, I don't know how, I don't know why, I don't have that much content, I'm not sure how to do it, I don't want to create the photos, all of that. So he was very resistant to the idea initially. And for me, it was a fun project because I have my own Instagram of like 500 followers, just my friends. So that's not their rich platform to per se. I'm not an influencer of any kind. Uh, so I was like, it's a fun project to see how, how much we can grow without significant investment into that because I, we were not up for like paying promotions and stuff like this all the time or buying followers for sure not. So what was good is that immediately when you register the Instagram, it notifies your Facebook friends, uh, like it links it to Instagram saying, oh, this account you follow in, on Facebook, you can follow in Instagram as well. So I think first thousand of people we got very easily. They got just from, from notifying things like this. But then after what, that, uh, it took some time to figure out what was, um, so there are two types of things which I, I see important. One type of thing is a content which your existing followers appreciate a lot and they like they're clicking and liking. And they're a type of content which would go far in terms of they're reaching people who are not yet following you, but will be interested enough to click on your profile and see what you're doing and follow you. So some of the posts perform really well and we always expect them to perform really well within the engaged audience, uh, but some of them we expect to reach further. Um, and once we understood the model and how what type of content works for what group and how you need to kind of mix it together in order to maximize the reach, but at the same time ensure engagement, uh, it started to be much easier. I think the biggest piece, which maybe Stefan is not saying that much, is trying to figure out what content to post and like gather the content to post. And it's always should have a certain point of view on things. It's not just reposting stuff. It's like, Either it's a part of interview or if it's something we want to highlight some projects of uh, some fellow bookbinders or want to talk about our tools or want to talk about book history or something to keep the platform not only self-centered, to not make a platform only reposting stuff and being very generic and very um, secondary to what the main content is. Uh, but being very educational and inspirational for people and sharing and uplifting the community and, and giving the platform to people. And what I especially love to see now is that we have enough following to kind of uplift people in terms of like, if we share the project and mentioning the person, the person gets a boost of followers immediately because people are very interested and they go and follow, uh, which is the nicest thing to see because you, you kind of share the love <laughs> to, to, to people. And then what is interesting about the algorithm, if you post consistently and if the Instagram sees that your engagement is nice enough, uh, it boosts your posts even without paid promotions. It just gives, shows it to more people. It puts them on explore page. And uh, then our I, I truly believe that our account now is growing easier than many other smaller accounts just because we already have this kind of critical mass of interested people who are boosting our engagement all the time. So now it's uh, from the point of editing photos and stuff like this, it takes me very little time. That's not too much. And I like edit photos and, and do things like that. Uh, content plan of like how we're going to do that. Stefan is not the biggest fan of like planning things in advance. He wants to be a bit more going with the flow and spontaneous and how I feel today which ends up sometimes being like, oh, it's midnight. We haven't posted anything on Instagram. Should we post something? No, we probably should go to bed. Um, so it, it just takes time to figure out what we need to post and, and uh, why, and then write the description and stuff like this. So I don't think we spend that much time on posting itself, but I'm pretty sure Stefan spent some time on researching stuff to post, which I'm well, not a part I, of. I guess, I guess still it takes an hour per day 
combined well, between probably, two yes, of us. Yes. So it's it's not yeah. like it it's no time. It's it still yeah. takes some time, and uh, and there are only twenty four hours per day, and uh, I have to do a lot of other things uh, uh, during my work day, and uh, Sofia also. <laughs> has a lot of job to do so uh, yeah it's 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 the it's the one thing which i want to say is that the maybe even more sufficient part of the day which we allocate is to replying to comments uh answering dms uh reading the stories sharing the stories and doing the things which are more of a reactive than proactive uh in in reacting to the community and making sure that we not ignoring any mentions we're not ignoring people dming and asking questions uh, we are highlighting things which we want to highlight and we use the content which people create for us uh, for our favor as well. Uh, that That's with, more With their permission. And that's, oh, that's very important to me. And, stuff. Uh, and uh, I, I, I'm, I'm quite, I don't know, picky, not picky, but meticulous, uh, uh, meticulous about uh, 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 being sure that I have permission to use uh, uh, photos or, or any other sort of content because uh, I, I I really don't like the situation with copyright and it, this is something we, we plan to discuss with Pavel at some point to invite some uh, some person who knows about copyrights and how they work because uh, for for some of book binders it's an important topic uh, can you use this or that image on your binding? Uh, or something like that. Can you use this photo? Can you reproduce this photo? What are the limitations? What is fair use? What is so? I I I prefer to be very you know clear and clean with uh, all the use of uh, of uh, material uh, created by other people. So I always uh, ask permission to share the photo, and I um, I think it's it's important to do it this way. Well. There are different approaches, and uh, I guess most of them are valid. But this is the way I, I prefer to do things. And uh, well, yeah. And speaking of things that other people created for you, what is that book standing next to you, Sonia? Oh, I think Stefan should tell. Uh, but uh, so one time, uh, Stefan was at the fair. I would say selling stuff. And here here in Leiden, yeah, there is, there is yeah. this uh, uh, book, concerts, Circle, right? uh, book arts fair, yeah. Yeah, and he came back with this book, which I think is a completely fascinating project. So it's a, it's a book with the cut-off things to create the iBookBinding logo, uh, which some kind soul or many souls, because it was a group project from what I remember, uh, did for Stefan just to uh, show the like talking of appreciation for the work he's doing, I think you can highlight uh, who it was and uh, how they did that. Uh, but I was so thoroughly impressed that I now keep it on my desk <laughs> at the workspace. Well, I, I unfortunately, I, I don't know the name of the person who did this uh, with their own hands. I know from whom it came to me and it's it's a fellow uh, colleague uh, from, from Germany. I guess uh, we can link uh, uh, their projects website in the description and they have they have some classes and uh, uh, that's that's from where this uh, uh, object book book object <laughs> uh, was uh, was sourced from where it came and uh, yeah I, I was I was so impressed because it's 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 so much work to do this and uh, you need to you need to to calculate every page to cut it and then fold it and then 
it's, 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 it's so, so much it's, precision. So yeah, yeah. That's I'm also fa uh, uh, fascinated in what came out of uh, this uh, uh, logo. You you remember it was done by by a student years and yeah. years and years ago, and now it's yeah. on cups, Everybody. it's on t-shirts. I have a face mask with this logo, and now yeah. it's on a piece of craft, piece of art. Yeah. I think I think I have it somewhere. <laughs> Over here. <laughs> of course, it's pink. Yeah, the logo is pretty impressive. And uh, many people who see it the, the first time, they, they say, well, yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's teaching on the spine of, of, of books, on, on different types of books. So um, yeah, it was, it was an interesting process to um, to see how it was created and to sort of try to tweak it a bit uh, in in this collaboration, Pavel Pavel was was a part of this process and uh, took a part in the, in this process and yeah, it was also fascinating to see how it's done from that side because they explained how uh, how they worked that uh, they wanted a modular logo uh, logo so that you could repeat those stitches as many times as you like, which was a big thing what yeah. was it like five years ago yeah, yeah. uh and i i think it's it's a great it's a great success yeah yeah Definitely. i like how it embodies the binding the books the, the the like at the time i was like yeah it's fine it's a graphic logo it's super nice you can use it but with time it kind of grew into something bigger and uh, being the representative symbol of many, many things. And I really, really like it. And also, it's very easily transferable to the tools which Stefan is doing, which is also very nice branding. Yeah, because if it would be complex <laughs> modular thing, that would be much, much more complex to, to use for printing. OK, perhaps one more question. Stepa, what are your wildest plans for the next three years? So the last three <laughs> years in Holland were quite a ride. What next? Huh. <laughs> well, I, I, I probably will start uh, with uh, uh, not as wild uh, plans for the closer future for the uh, upcoming month because I have I have a lot of ideas and I I I, I sort of uh, was really upset in the, in the past few months that I, I, I haven't really uh, worked on, on many designs and many updates uh, of the tools or some new tools in the past months because I was quite busy since uh, uh, since the beginning of lockdowns and I'm quite lucky in this way because I guess I guess uh, uh, people were spending more time home and uh, uh, they wanted some more things for their their hobbies uh, so it, it, it helped me to you know, survive this year as well but uh, uh, the other side of uh, having a lot of work to do was that I, I, I didn't have uh, any time for uh, you know for innovation or something like that for designing new things so um, first I have some ideas of uh, new tools and uh, one of the one of my pet projects was uh, to create uh, a set of tools for creating uh, uh, mini book, mini books, and miniature books. books, miniature books. Yeah, and uh, uh, I I have some. I, I I I've experimented already with some uh, designs, but uh, it needs uh, more fine tuning 
Uh, so this is one of the things I want to do. There are some other ideas uh, uh, that I want to try. Some of them are uh, already exist in the market and I have uh, maybe some thoughts how to improve uh, existing tools, uh, other things I haven't seen before. So uh, I hope uh, when our followers will see them, they will be uh, quite happy and interested. But uh, on, the other, on the other hand, uh, I have some things I want to change in how iBookBinding works. Uh, the amount of orders grew quite a lot in the past uh, year, past 12 months. And uh, uh, one of the things that I don't like about how the things are at the moment is that uh, I, I still make tools with plastic and it's not really renewable material. And uh, I want to uh, make my production much cleaner. It's, it's sort of, it's, it's not a one use plastic. So I'm, I'm not, uh, I think my conscience is quite uh, clean in this way, uh, quite, you know, uh, okay with that, uh, that uh, people use these tools for years and I know it for sure. Uh, but still when you're making, uh, when you're 3D printing tools, when you are prototyping, you have a lot of leftover material. And one of the first thing I want to do when we move to France is to uh, get some new tools to recycle all this leftover plastic and maybe even some more. It's so, important to uh, mention that it's a bio-based plastic, right? Sorry? It's important to mention that it's bio-based plastic. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I use PLA and it's, it's corn-based plastic. Some people say that it's biodegradable, but it's not, you know, truly biodegradable. It is biodegradable when used under certain conditions with, with uh, additional agents. So uh, it's not like you throw it away and it degrades in, in, in a couple of years. That's, that's not true. It's more biodegradable than some other sorts of plastic. So I guess it will take not 400 years for it to degrade, but 100, but still it's a long time. So I, I want to make my production as clean as it's possible uh, in, 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 in terms of uh, waste material. As, as I told before, I try to use all the packaging I get and uh, all the all the cardboard materials that I get, I reuse and uh, use it for packaging. I want to do same uh, for for all the plastic materials I have. So it will. And it will and be... what about three D printing your own packaging? Is that uh, project still alive? Well, yeah, I had some experiments with the uh, with using paper pulp in in three D printing, and uh, I I need. Well, I need more time to experiment with it because uh, the uh, in in the end I, I could produce some some uh, uh, some things for packaging, but it was too finicky and uh, uh, not not stable enough. And I need to improve, you know, the the fluidity of this uh, uh, paper pulp paste that is needed to create these objects from uh, from paper, but. Yeah, this that's in the plans as well. We'll see when it happens, but uh, I, I'm not sure about dates yet. So basically, you have lots of plans, but you don't have enough time. What are you planning to do about? Uh, that's that's the other thing that ha just has to happen. Uh, I need to get at least at least one employee when we move to France. After I have a workshop, 
And uh, uh, at, at first, I plan to, to find a person who will help me with uh, uh, packing the orders and uh, sorting some stuff, uh, not really doing any work related to designing or 3D printing or something like that. But, uh, uh, well, packaging at the moment takes from two to six hours per day. So it's quite a lot. And uh, some days I, I, I can work 12 hours and, uh, uh, and uh, in the, at, at the end of the day, I feel that I, I haven't done enough. So uh, yeah, the, the business grows and it's great. And uh, it's, it's not only the business, uh, it's just the project in, 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 in its totality, you know, because there is, uh, I, I really hope to, to see iBook Binding as educational project that pays for itself. Of course, I want to have some income and it, it's, 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 uh, it's great to feel that you are, you know, you are uh, having some input in your family budget. <laughs> but still, I, I, I really have this sort of idealistic view that uh, we need to bring knowledge uh, to, to the audience, to bring more people to bookbinding, to share stories of different bookish people and this was one of the reasons uh, I decided to create uh, iBookbinding podcast uh, last year and to invite Pavel to, to be a co-host. So, well, we'll see how it goes. It takes time and uh, it definitely without, without, uh, uh, without some help without, with an employee, it would be possible to move forward because at the moment I feel that I'm almost at the limit of my human abilities to, you know, to process everything we do. Uh, uh, with iBook mining project. But to, to say on top of that, after six hours of packing, the special pleasure we have is to, in our evening walk, which we have usually every day, uh, we put together all of the packages and everything, go to the mailbox, and I put them on. Uh, this is the only part which I'm taking in packaging. I'm like, I'm sending them in uh, because in the, in the Netherlands they have fun orange mailbox which you need to put it in the in the, in the thing uh, and it's a great end of the day because the Stefan worked the whole day he created I don't know 25 packages uh, we're sending them in uh, and I especially like the part with mailbox not with people when you need to register the packaging and like track and all of this stuff that I don't like but the pure action of like putting it in and like kind of sending it away very satisfaction uh and it's, it's a fantastic thing to do in the evening so it's our especially, especially a, stra a, a strange satisfying feeling when you fill up the mailbox and there is no place <laughs> left for anything else so it's like when he has a lot of small packages with like corner cutting jigs or something like this it's like one two three four thirty it's like in the mailbox is full away like okay uh you did the thing you can take a rest for the rest of the day uh, which is not a lot. Uh, and I have to tell you, even though I work a lot, Stefan works more. Like he spends, and he never stops for Saturdays or Sundays, even when well, he says Well, I, 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 I have a, yeah, free day even on Saturday. He he's, and... he's usually either editing videos or creating some new designs or thinking about the Instagram or doing some things with the orders or calculating the taxes or doing some something. Like, he never stops because he always has this tingling sensation that there's so much more to do, uh, which I appreciate about my job. 
I also think about it a lot, even during the weekends, but I can switch off. I can like, okay, my laptop is in another room. I'm not going to open it and I can enjoy watching Grey's Anatomy or something. But uh, Stefan is always in because it's his baby, right? So he's very passionate about it, which I appreciate a lot. And obviously the idea would be to outsource all the parts which don't require his mega brain to think about, um, to clear some space for content creation and the I remember at some point he was passionate about creating the uh, courses for bookbinding for like, uh, I don't know, making perfect corners or making boxes or something like this, which I thought was a spectacular idea. And I'm sure he has tons of knowledge to share with people. It just requires so much time and effort to put it together and to produce it in a very high quality level uh, that he never got to it, but maybe he can. And I, I told him like, we are moving now. You will have three to four weeks break from production of the orders. And he was obviously very uh, concerned about this piece because you need to stop the business for a certain time. Uh, but at the same time, you can use it as opportunity to focus on some more of a content creation part of thing or uh, more thinking. Because I know better than anybody when you work all the time and you spend all the time doing, 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 there's not much time to reflect on things just because you don't have much mind space to allocate to. I guess I guess my my biggest and wildest dream is to uh, start creating series of uh, workshops in different countries for children, because uh, one of the most amazing experience, experiences in my life was after I was already teaching uh, bookbinding for for a couple of years, I was invited to this uh, weekly uh, Sunday uh, class for. Uh, it, it was it was not specifically dedicated to bookbinding. It was about book arts in general. So uh, they were uh, uh, studying how to uh, design uh, um, the uh, layouts for texts, how to design covers, how to everything. And it, it was a series of uh, of workshops for kids starting with uh, age of seven and. Uh, up to uh, 14 or 15 and i was i was invited uh, to to feel this part of uh, physical bookmaking uh bookbinding and i i did it for for a year or so and i'm i'm so very grateful to to the people who uh created this initiative and who invited me because i was so scared in the beginning because i was like they wouldn't listen to me they will eat me like and and don't like. you know don't notice and uh, put sharp objects on your chair yeah and yeah and it was so amazing they were so they were sort of accepting all the all the ideas and uh, and uh, uh, bookbinding styles I showed them and they were listening and they were learning and it was it was such an amazing and uh, uh, magical experience uh, so I, I i really want to bring more of it to the world and uh, uh, hopefully in russia but in some other countries as well i i don't know what when it will happen but uh, that's sort of one of the goals of uh, of uh, of all this project at the moment and at some moment we were discussing with sofia well if i want to make uh, uh, uh ibook binding fully non-for-profit uh, uh what what would you say? And Sophie was well. I I work at a corporate job. I I, I think at some point we will be able to you know to to 
to do that. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I, I still want to, you know, to to earn my <laughs> earn my stay. <laughs> but uh, uh, it is definitely one of my goals to create uh, some sort of uh, project within iBookbinding to teach. Uh, kids in the first place maybe other people uh, older people as well but uh, we'll see how it goes it's it's just my uh, my most important dream uh, for for some time that's that, that sounds really nice and that is a good place to stop i think <laughs> i i wanted to add just a couple of things it's a good place to stop i just wanted to uh, swiftly uh, uh at, at a couple of things uh that's uh, we have some plans for uh ibook my news podcast for this year and they are quite important and pavel knows about them we we really want to add uh, uh two more hosts to our project and uh, we already have uh, uh two um, amazing persons who are who uh, uh, agreed to join this project, or at least to try to do that, and to uh, uh, add French and Spanish uh, versions of uh, podcast uh, uh, to iBook Binding. We'll see how it goes. I don't, I'm not sure if it will if it will uh, succeed, but we will try, and uh, we will definitely. If if it if if it wouldn't go this year, we will continue trying next year. But that yeah, that's something that we plan to do. You wanted to talk about some technical stuff as well, no? About the moving? Uh, yeah, I guess I guess we, we discussed almost almost everything uh, about it. You 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 talked about uh, some technical stuff related to moving that uh, we won't have our uh, stuff and I won't have uh, our equipment for for a couple of weeks. So that's one of the main reasons why I'm I plan to stop uh, all the activities. Uh, related to uh, uh, to iBookbinding's shop, just because I wouldn't have any equipment. Of course, I will have to register as a business in France, and it will kind of, uh, take some time and other things. Uh, but well, yeah, the uh, the pricing the, uh, can change. Uh, yeah, and and the prices, the prices probably will change because uh, uh, taxes are different in France. Uh, uh, there are more. Uh, social taxes there i guess than in the netherlands and uh, uh, uh i suppose uh prices will will rise just a bit but well i hope Ever so everybody, everybody will be okay with it and in terms of shipping probably nothing uh, much well shipping shipping uh, is uh, almost the same and uh, uh it will still remain. Uh, it's 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 a policy that sort of uh, we we had to follow because Etsy is so U.S. centered platform, and uh, they they really try to make you offer free shipping to U.S. based based customers, and at, it's easy for a U.S. based business uh, because you just uh, choose your region and you uh, make shipping free for. For your home region but if you are living and making things outside of the us you have to make you have to do free shipping worldwide so that's what we have and that's what we will have uh, uh, after we move to france so this uh, wouldn't change we will have free shipping or uh, any person coming from any region any country of the world 
What's the most exotic place you had to uh, send your tools to? Like, I don't, I don't know, Pitcairn Islands? Uh. <laughs> not, not, not Pitcairn, but uh, I have a first order from, uh, from uh, Qatar recently. And uh, yeah, that that was uh, I uh, I I had uh, I had some orders from uh, Middle East countries uh, uh, before, but uh, it was first order from Qatar, and I, I checked just just uh, a few days ago. Uh, uh, we sent orders to eighty countries from all continents uh, except uh, Antarctica, of course. Uh, I don't Any know day now? Course. I don't know why, of course, because I guess uh, uh, <laughs> some uh, some scientists from there uh, uh, may also be interested in book binding and. Uh, uh, book I binding mean, tools. after this year, you can imagine what it's like on the south. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, the the main uh, the main uh, con country that uh, the country that I get. The most orders from is uh, uh, still the United States, but if, uh, for example, uh, three years ago it was something like uh, uh, thirty to forty percent of orders came from there. Now it's twenty-five uh, percent, and uh, uh, many other countries joined the uh, the crowd, and the people from from other countries are uh, now part of my bookbinding community. And I'm I'm very impressed uh, when I when I see. Uh, a new country on the list and it's uh, you know it's quite amazing I, i'm a bit upset that uh, not many orders come from russia uh but uh, i guess the uh the yeah the the financial situation is uh, not yeah, the best quite expensive in, in, yeah. in russia and the tools are yeah tools are quite expensive for 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 many people there uh well there may also be paradoxically a language barrier your pre your web presence is mostly in english yeah yeah that's true that's true and also shipping from the netherlands is not the easiest to rush yeah yeah it takes some time but yeah uh, other than that uh, united states canada united kingdom there are many many customers from united kingdom of course european countries uh, uh, get orders from uh, uh, from Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, Taiwan, uh, sometimes from Japan, lots of orders from Australia and uh, uh, some orders from New Zealand, but Australia- These are the most expensive ones. Uh, Australia currently is on, on the third place among the, you know, uh, the uh, quantity in, in, in terms of quantity of orders. So yeah, there is, there is a huge uh, community of uh, binders in Australia. And that's something we really want to we really wanted to, to you know, to uh, uh, have more access to with with Pavel on our uh, podcast, and we have some plans uh, inviting uh, bookish people from Australia. Can't, can't, can't wait, rather soon, right? Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll see how it goes. There are some plans; uh, they are not, uh, uh, you know, finalized yet, but uh, I hope uh, something will come through soon. You're gonna so... record it in the night. So basically, like yeah. drag, uh, like drag race, I I would buy. Down under. <laughs> down under. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Sort of like that. Yeah, it's 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 sometimes it's really tough because uh, 
uh, when we record with the United States, or for example, when we had uh, recorded a, a podcast with Mexico uh, uh, some, time, some time ago, and uh, it's really late for Pavel. It's not, not as late for me because we're uh, two, uh, Pavel is two hours ahead of us. So difference, time difference, maybe nine or 10 hours for him. And uh, with uh, we will have uh, some guests from uh, uh, from 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 Japan and uh, other country, other Asia Asian countries uh, pretty soon. And uh, uh, well, we will have to to record in in the morning our time and it'll be evening for them. So it's it's a bit tricky, but yeah, we we find we find some you know uh, opportunities to do that because it's it's really something that's. Uh, really improved our lives i mean my 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 and pavel's <laughs> pavel's and mine lives uh, uh in this past month you have no idea how grateful i am for uh, for this it, it's been a really really fun ride uh, i really like to talk to people the, <laughs> and it, it, it's been everything and clearly people like to talk to me uh, <laughs> So, so it, yeah, so it's been it, it's been very, very, very enjoyable, and it's really helped me through uh, uh, the first wave and the second wave. And which wave are we on now? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we, and this this too will pass. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Well, let's drink to that. <laughs> we were drinking through there. through this podcast and well sorry <laughs> <laughs> cheers cheers everyone <clears throat> while you were talking about big dreams i was drinking <laughs> <laughs> so will you read us out yeah yeah i guess uh uh i checked the statistics on on youtube and uh the 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 quantity of viewers drops like momentarily when I start to read this stuff, but please join us, join the crowd on Patreon because we really uh, need uh, your support to bring these new versions, uh, Spanish and French versions of uh, our podcast to uh, to our viewers to our community. Uh, check the link below and uh, see what's uh, what what your support on Patreon can be. Many thanks to all of you who watched through this video or, you know, skipped through the parts and used the timestamps, uh, anything. Uh, uh, it's, it's really important for us that uh, you are there and that you are watching and uh, you are a part of our community. And it's, it's, it's a really uh, delightful thing to, to do this, to, to record this podcast, to meet all these people and to do this for you. So thank you very much for being with us. And I hope you will stay with us for many, many months and years. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and share. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye, everyone. My, 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 my beloved Sofia for joining us today. And uh, see you next time. Bye-bye.